Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. You might have heard me say a few minutes ago, uh, I've been away for 10 days. Something came up in my family uh, and it had to be dealt with. And so now I'm back attempting to do shows. And it just feels very unfamiliar, even though I'm sitting here in a very familiar place, which would say, which would be the part of my house that is now a radio studio. So a little bit later on the show today, um, well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, A few days ago, diligently, wanting to be a full participant in the funding of our fine democracy. I affixed two Ellsworth Kelly stamps to two envelopes and mailed various things to the IRS, only to find out a day or two later, the IRS has 11 million unopened pieces of mail. Uh, So that has consequences for all kinds of people. We'll try to explain that to you. And then, yes, almost everywhere now, people are reporting loud um, and persistent uh, and not confined to any particular set of hours, uses of fireworks. Uh, and that has, first of all, spawned a certain amount of content and, uh, of, of, excuse me, a certain amount of discontent and, and complaints to the police and stuff like that. Uh, but also conspiracy theories. We'll tell you about that uh, as we go along here. But as we usually do on Mondays, we want now to talk uh, about how things are going right now with COVID. The answer is not very good, but we'll try to get a little bit more granular than that. Uh, and so joining us today, hold on, I have to use a different piece of equipment here today. Uh, joining us today to do that uh, is Rebecca Katz. Rebecca Katz is a professor and director of the Center for Global Health, Science and Security at, Gl- at Georgetown University Medical Center. Welcome to our show. Yeah, not hearing Rebecca at the moment. Uh, let's let's see if we can. We'll, there she is. I think I just heard her. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, can you hear me now? Yeah, there you are. So, um, you know, uh, I looked back, it was actually June 8th, uh, I was talking to one of your colleagues uh, in this field, Michael Minna, and we were saying that at that moment, if you looked at cases, it looked like there was a plateau in the U.S., but it was kind of a fake plateau. There were a whole group of states, like the one that I live in, that were going down, down, bending the curve down pretty dramatically. And there were a whole bunch of states that were starting to have new cases. So if you added them all up, they flattened, but in a very deceiving way. But from what I can tell, that's over now. The number of cases that, the number of states that can diminish their cases can no longer offset these sharp vertical movements in, in these sicker states. Maybe you'd like to elaborate. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing really disturbing trends at the moment. Over um, over half the country, well, really almost every state, with the exception of just a handful, are seeing increases in COVID cases right now. And about half are, well, more than half, um, are, are seeing... Uh, in some cases, almost exponential growth um, or or trends that look like it's heading that way. So, yeah, we're seeing really disturbing numbers. Um, you know, as, as you know, we now have over 2.5 million cases in the United States and over 126,000 deaths. And, and to put that in perspective, we, we account for 
approximately 4% of the global population, but we have 25% of cases and deaths. Right. So, and, and, and that's even, I mean, one of the few mildly encouraging trends, as I understand it, is the rate of death per infection actually is bending down a little bit, maybe an indication that uh, more young people are getting affected, and also maybe an indication that the U.S. is getting better clinically at treating some of the sick people. But still, that's a crazy percentage of deaths, right? Right. I mean, I think what you're saying is, is, is we hope that's true. I, certainly, um, we're seeing a larger percentage of people who are on, between 18 and 44 who are testing positive. Um, and as we as we've learned to date, that their outcomes tend to be more positive, and there's less um, critical disease amongst that population than a, than a, an older group. So I think it it does say something about the fact that these are. That, that one, that maybe we're doing a better job of shielding our most vulnerable populations, but two, that the, um, the younger population is uh, maybe uh, more open to reengaging in society and possibly um, more exposed to the virus, um, but, they're, um, but, but thankfully not getting quite as sick. So it's not much of a mystery why this is happening. At least I, I would assume it's no. not that big a mystery. I mean, we've got uh, four states that represent 8% of the population uh, that are meet none of the federal criteria for reopening. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've they've reopened, basically. They although obviously a lot of them are pulling in their horns a little bit now. But mm-hmm. the fact that we don't have any kind of centralized set of rules or guidelines that everybody is following or even close to everybody is following, I assume that's a, the simpler explanation for what's happening. Well, it, incre- it, it, it uh, continues to be incredibly frustrating. I think that the um, in, in the absence of unified guidance and and specific operational guidance from the federal government, every state, as well as every municipality, every organization, every university, um, every every single entity is trying to to feel this out for themselves. And there, as as you just mentioned, approximately 12 states are either pausing or reversing the reopening plans as they're coming um, face-to-face with the, with the realities of, of what increased caseloads look like and, um, and the hospitals becoming overwhelmed. But it, it, is, it is really a, a challenge. We've had a lot of folks who've tried to get very smart very fast on a lot of um, details on public health response. And it's, it, it has, to your point, not been uniform. Right. And, you know, that uh, that idea of getting smart fast. I mean, I feel like we're, we're trapped in this kind of continuous melange of the past, present and future. <laughs> we're trying to look at the present moment and trying to learn about it in real time. And obviously things are happening pretty fast in real time, whether it's rising case numbers or I don't know, as of today. Now we're talking about a G variant, maybe a slightly uh, different kind of mutation that might be a little bit more infectious. We're trying to understand what's happening at the at the present moment. We're also trying to figure out 
how we got into this mess. Um, so we're trying to look at the past, the recent past, to understand, for example, why why the asymptomatic transmission was kind of overlooked, even though there were scientists trying to explain that, no, no, you didn't have to have symptoms in order to infect other people. You know, the Stat News t today ran a piece suggesting we're going to need a 9-11 type commission uh, to figure out all the things that went wrong here. And we're trying to look at the future, too. Uh, and, and all that, each one kind of interacts with the other. But maybe just talk about we could just talk about the past for a second. Is there any point thinking about all that stuff right now when we have so much on our plate? Is there are there things that we can learn from the immediate past that will help us in the present and future? Maybe. I mean, at first, I would note that just what at the situation the situation you're describing is not any different than what we do with every emerging infectious disease. You are when we have a new disease emerge. You are you're constantly fighting the an epidemic un, with uh, under uncertainty. You just there are things that you're learning as you go, um, and and that's that's the that's the world of emerging infectious diseases. It's not uncommon to not have all the answers up front. And in fact, uh, you know that the challenge is actually being able to to learn and adapt as you go. And I think that, you know, is it, well, can we learn from the past? Absolutely. And yeah, I've, I've been, I've been joking for a long time that I plan to spend the next 10 years reading the dissertations um, that, that will no doubt come out of everything that's happened over the last couple of months. And I think, you know, to the question of should we be digging in now um, or should we be focusing on, on the current and future response? I think to me, clearly the priority is how do we save lives right now? And that is primarily focused on what do we know today and what do we need to prepare for for, for the short and, and medium term. But uh, it doesn't, it, we, we have a lot of really smart people who are singly focused on this pandemic at the moment. And there is plenty of room for folks to look backwards at the same time that others are focused on the present. So I think that there's... Um, my understanding is that WHO is in negotiations and plans to actually send a, a team hopefully next week uh, back to China to start looking into the origins of the outbreak. Um, and, and it's hard to tell right now until you know the findings how useful it will be for the current response, but it will certainly inform our, our understanding of, of coronaviruses in general and hopefully this one specifically. You know, one reason I think to look at the recent past is that there is inevitably, whether we would like to talk about it or not, there's a political component to this whole thing. In fact, I've become yeah. addicted to this podcast <laughs> called This Week in Virology, and they all these virologists have people receiving emails saying, don't make it political. And the scientists keep saying, we'll stop when they stop. They started it. They made it political. And there really are these two worlds. There's the world of, you know, Anthony Fauci and Rebecca Katz and Michael Minna and Greg Gonsalves <laughs> and all these scientists. And then there's this other world where you, for the first time since April, the so-called White House Task Force on Coronavirus made an appearance in the last few days and really did describe a radically different reality than what you and I are talking about right now. I mean, there there are these... I mean, calling them calling them two competing narratives would almost be charitable, but there is a way in which people have a almost a menu from of what they can believe in right now. Well, first, I'm just going to 
ask in the fact that you just mentioned my name in the same breath as Dr. Fauci. So um, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm in the same I'm in the same ballpark, uh, but but very much appreciate the mention. Um, I yes, the, the it, this has become political, um, and in part because this is this is a, a massive event in our lives, clearly. And um, it's not just about public health. And we're seeing that as we look into, you know, the, how public health guidance is used, um, accepted, not accepted, public health officials being targeted, uh, data being targeted, data becoming political, uh, because it's, again, it's not just about, you know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, or, you know, reopen economies don't, reopen schools don't. There are so many factors that, that are that are coming into play, and I um, I think we're, we're all starting to sound a little bit like a broken record. That be nice if if you could just listen to the public health piece by itself, uh, but that's that's not the reality of our current situation. Which means that those of us who, particularly those of us who are not in government at the moment, are are spending a lot of time having conversations like the one that we're having. And trying to make sure that the evidence, as best that we understand it, is um, shared with the general public and communicated in a way that um, that people are able to internalize it and and change their behaviors accordingly. But it's not it's not necessarily the way it should be, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be really nice if there was a uh, trusted official uh, public health government official who who was doing daily press conferences and not only explaining the latest developments, but also answering the, the, the questions that come up time and time again, like the same way that honestly the World Health Organization has been doing daily pressers. And we just haven't had that. Right. Um, actually, uh, if you call this progress, uh, Mike Pence and Governor Abbott from Texas gave a press conference this weekend. I think mm-hmm. for the first time you might have might have heard Mike Pence uh, endorse the idea of masks. But let's just hear that audio and see if we did hear it. When we uh, when we issued the guidelines to open up America again, we we laid out a phased reopening plan. Texas took that plan and implemented it here uh, in a safe and responsible uh, way. But there was guidance throughout. Um, that applied to all of the phases. And uh, uh, chief among them was that people should continue to practice good hygiene, that wash your hands, avoid touching your face, uh, and wear a mask. <laughs> I feel like I'm in cloud cuckoo land. I mean, obviously... I'll take it. He, okay. he, he did say wear a mask. He did actually wear a mask. Now, he wore a mask in front of a choir indoors of 100-plus people singing, which are both, you know, being indoors and singing unmasked risky behavior. But he did actually say the words wear a mask. So we'll, I, I think we'll take our wins where we can get them. <laughs> yes, I guess. I mean, it would be nice to see a little modeling good behavior from, you know, the president uh, when it comes to wearing masks. But yes, I, I think well, it, that I, is, I, yeah, go but, ahead. But I think that that's a really important point. And we, there are a lot of, there's a, I think because, I mean, we can joke about it, but it's really important because there's a lot of people in this country who, who see the president not wearing a mask and might, may or may not listen to that full, um, clip of, of the vice president, but they don't, they don't see it. 
And so they don't really internalize that this is something that, that, that has to be done. And I, it's just, uh, you know, um, risk communication, crisis communication, like actually getting correct messages to the public is so critical that, that it, it's, it's more important. It, it is really important, actually, for every leader um, and, and every person who we could call an influencer, whether it's the president of the United States, whether it's every athlete or Hollywood star or whoever has, um, you know, more followings in social media than certainly public health officials, they, they all need to be modeling this behavior. Um, yes. Well, Reese Witherspoon stepped up in the last couple of days and she had a very kicky little yes. ma- mask on too. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you can rock the mask a little bit, I think it helps. So if we could talk a little bit about the future, I, I, I would guess that you, when, and this is all just guessing by both of us, but that when you have to guess it, that it might be this time, 2021, before you and I and everybody else uh, gets immunized. And we, we also don't really know what the immunization will do, whether it'll confer a long-term immunity or, or short-term. We don't, there's so many much, so much that we don't know, but I assume we should be planning to live alongside this thing for at least another 12 months. I think that's probably right. I mean, I, I, I think that there probably will be a vaccine candidate before then. Um, but unclear at this point, you know, how, how many candidates there will be, what their safety and efficacy are and, and how much is able to be produced. So I think for the general population thinking about, this time-ish next year might be about the time when there might be, hopefully, a, a vaccine that, that can be distributed widely and, and that people want to take and they know is effective. So, I yes, um, I think we're going to be living with this virus for a while, but I it's not sexy, it's not exciting, but we have seen what works in other countries. We have seen, and it's not, that complicated. It takes work, but it's not complicated. If people are able to practice the behavior, the, the, the personal behaviors of of wearing a mask, of socially distancing, of good, having good hand hygiene, of staying home and isolating when you're sick, and that's coupled with effective public health measures. So the ability to test, and once somebody is tested, to to trace all our contacts and to isolate people and that we have a, um, a supported healthcare system that's able to provide clinical support. If we can do all those things, we've seen this in other countries that they are able to get their, their numbers down incredibly low. And yes, we'll be, they're living with the virus as we all are until again, we have that effective medical countermeasure, but they're living in it with it in a very different way. They are, they are able to actually get back to um, as close to normal as, as, as they can. And, and we're not in the United States. We're, we're not anywhere close to that right now. It seems to me, based on my recent reading, that another message that needs to get transmitted all over the place is that underlying good health is really, really important, given the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, even if we do everything that you just said, 
tens of millions more Americans are going to get infected with this uh, because not everybody yeah. will do what you said. Um, and, and that, you know, we now have this interesting cohort of somewhat younger infectees. It does seem as though, in addition to the racial disparities that we're aware of, that uh, obesity tends to be a, a, a big fork in the road in terms of outcome. Uh, young people who are significantly overweight are having worse outcomes from a COVID infection than, than those who aren't. And it's, it's uh, one thing I don't think I hear as much as I'd like to uh, is that idea that if you can keep your general health good, uh, you have a better chance of getting through these 12 months. Maybe you could say something about that. Well, it's a good public health message in general. I think the, yes, um, unfortunately, people with underlying health conditions or obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, are uh, all of the, all of the data seem to point to the fact that, that people with these underlying health conditions have, tend to have worse outcomes. Um, not always, but it's, it's certainly, it's certainly worse. Um, I think that there, there's yeah slightly careful with messaging because the answer isn't you know if you if you just lose ten pounds you're not going to get COVID that right. that's not that's not the story but I think with with COVID just like with many other conditions taking care of yourself and and being healthy and eating well and doing everything you can um, is is important for. For, for lots of different conditions, but also um, includes your ability, you know, your what what may happen if you become infected with this particular virus. So always a good message to 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 do what you can to exercise, to eat well, and to and take care of yourself, and that includes taking care of your mental health as well. So um, uh, last set of questions, um, you, I think, very artfully explained, you know, what we really will probably need to do for the next 12 months, physical distance, distancing from one another, lots more hand washing, wearing masks, uh, all these kinds of things that we know works. But the other component to it, to which you also alluded, is what is sometimes called Tetris, which is testing, tracing, isolating. And it seems mm -hmm. as though we never have really gotten all the way up on our feet with that. And it's even compounded by the fact last night, and this isn't really part of the typical Tetris model, but last night, 60 Minutes did this rather chilling report on the serology tests, the tests that de de detect antibodies uh, in, in people who have been infected that were rushed into the market without even any scrutiny at all from the FDA. And so many of those don't work either. But just, you know, even back to the basic, you know, PCR diagnostic testing, the tracing, the isolating, which is just, you know, the playbook really for dealing with this. It feels like we're still not really there in any kind of uniform way. I I would have to agree. I mean, I think that it's, again, really uneven across the country. Uh, as we saw from this weekend that, it, you know, you, people were waiting 13 hours in line to get a test in Phoenix. The, the line's of, of people who are not socially distancing, you know, snaking around blocks in Houston. Um, so, but yet in, in New York City, you can, you can walk up and get a test, uh, immediately. Um, so I think that there's, there, there continues to be a lot of unevenness across the country and just the ability to access testing. There, um, we, we haven't quite seen the, 
developments, the advancements that I was hoping we would see by now in terms of getting closer to a to a rapid point of care test that that wouldn't require um, uh, a medical professional to supervise. Uh, and and gosh, I hope that we get there because being able to to cheaply, easily test on a on a regular basis would really be a game changer in helping us better understand how we reopen parts of our, our society. All right. Final question, I promise, but Rebecca Katz. Um, don't we ultimately, or would it be better anyway, if we could do some real heterogeneous testing? In other words, most of the people who are getting tested right now have some reason for getting tested. Either they're in harm's way because they're frontline workers, or maybe they know somebody who's been infected, or maybe they've been told to get it, for, or maybe they're symptomatic. But you know, for example, here in Connecticut, I suggested that before we reopen the schools, pick a grade, pick this fifth grade arbitrarily and try to test every mm-hmm. fifth grader, you know, and you wouldn't get all of them. But let's say you got 75 percent of the fifth graders. You'd have a sense at that point of how the disease is seeded in this particular population that wasn't dependent on the kinds of markers that that push people to the front of the line for testing, but is more likely to dig. I mean, it's sort of what has been done in other countries, um, even Wuhan, where, you know, they, they tested, I don't know, 6.5 million people in 10 <laughs> days and found 200 people who are asymptomatic. But you don't you right. almost have to do that to get a real picture of this before you, for example, reopen the school system? You do. And I think that's exactly what we're going to start to see. So, I mean, right now, a lot of the testing has been focused on uh, individuals coming forward. So whether they, they are, they are initially symptomatic with a travel history or, and hospitalized now, are you symptomatic? Is it, are you, are you concerned that you had a contact? Um, so it is really people kind of self-identifying for, but there's also at the same time active surveillance that's going on. And there, it's not huge studies, but my understanding is CDC is supposed to be running a, a set of, uh, surveillance studies over the summer. And I think as we start to see more companies and universities and other entities think about reopening, they're, they're starting to do exactly what you're saying. So, um, you know, what, what we're seeing is, is industry, if they're going to bring a, a group of people back into the office, they might do a, you know, one-time effort to test everybody in other in other organizations, maybe that they're they're well better funded or their people seem to be um, at a higher risk, they are deploying strategies that include testing everybody once a week or once every two weeks. Um, and you and then you're seeing the the sports leagues that are are testing people uh, at a much more frequent pace. So I think that as as these entities start to engage in much more testing, that as as you mentioned, it's not necessarily tied to um, a symptom or suspect exposure, we're going to start to be able to collect a lot more information on on who may be asymptomatic and what the the true prevalence rate actually is. Well, Rebecca Katz, professor and director of the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University Medical Center. Yeah, Fauci is going to get statues. You might not get a statue, <laughs> but you're really, really good. And we are very grateful to have you. We, we take you any day. So thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll explain to you why the the IRS has not opened the envelope you sent them. So let's enjoy this compilation. I just want to feel your love. 
Cause Instagram is not enough for me. So I gotta be patient. Let's enjoy this combination. So this uh, next segment is somewhat born out of my own experiences. Uh, and by that, I mean, well, I'm scrolling on this machine here, too. Um, by that, I mean this weekend um, or last Friday or something, uh, I um, uncustomarily a few days early uh, mailed in my check for my balance due, my tax due for the 2019 tax year. And I even in a separate envelope uh, mailed in a quarterly payment for this year. Um, I was very careful to uh, select excellent Ellsworth Kelly stamps for each envelope. I uh, took them right to the post office, so I felt confident that they would get there. And then I came back and I found out that the IRS is 11 million, or now 11 million and two mail pieces behind in terms of actually opening envelopes. Because it turns out that although you can work from home, you cannot open mail from home. You actually have to be in the presence of mail that you are going to um, open. So here to tell us more about that and what that means and what that amounts to is Kelly Phillips Herb, a managing shareholder at the Herb Law Firm, a senior contributor at Forbes, a regular columnist for Bloomberg Tax and author of the Tax Girl blog. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. So I don't know if I summed up things. Well, I summed up my own life very accurately. You perhaps could talk a little bit more universally about what's happening here. I, as the IRS is kind of stepping back towards something approaching full physical strength uh, this week. They are way, way behind on physical mail. So what does that, um, what does that mean? Sure. Well, first of all, kudos to you for already mailing in your return and your estimated payments. Um, those aren't due to July 5th, and we've been joking there's still a lot of people who I uh, think about 10 million or so who haven't filed yet. So kudos to you. Um, but yeah, what, what's going on right now is that um, when IRS was um, taking time off during COVID um, and, and like, you know, most of us were uh, staying at home, um, they were ro working remotely, but obviously, you know, you don't open the mail remotely. So they were stockpiling the mail. And I think they were saying something like it had gotten, it, it was well past that 11 million figure that, that you noted. Um, that was the figure that the IRS told us last week that still remains unopened. Um, and, you know, as you just pointed out, they're also getting new mail every day. So um, there, there have been some real delays and some real frustrations for taxpayers. Um, fortunately, there are folks going back to work at IRS and they are slowly getting back to normal. Um, but, you know, there's there's clearly some some significant uh, backlog that has to be addressed. And again, you know, on on the practitioner side, we are hearing from folks who are wondering, you know, why hasn't the IRS cashed my check? Why haven't they responded to my correspondence? And that's really what's going on is that that mail is uh, sitting in a room waiting to be opened. Well, there's another group of clients you are no doubt hearing from uh, saying, where is the check that the IRS should be sending me? Right. Those people who I mean, a lot of people, I guess, get direct deposit. I, I assume that's less affected by all this stuff. But there are a number of people, I assume, waiting for conventional good old physical checks. Sure. Well, so one of the things that is is clear is that um, electronic uh, submittal of returns and payments 
are being processed more quickly. So if you are one of those folks who did electronically file a tax return um, and you were due a refund, chances are that you probably already received your refund. Now that doesn't apply to everybody um, because as you noted, some people are getting paper checks and some people also require a little more scrutiny or a little more time um, with respect to looking at the return. But what we're really hearing from in terms of people who are really frustrated are folks who paper filed. Um, you know, it's funny because IRS downplays the, the paper filings because so many of us file electronically now. But even if you say 10% of folks, you know, filed a paper return, that's still 100, sorry, that's still 14 or 15 million taxpayers. And then on top of that, you have folks who might have amended because this was a really uh, kind of out of the ordinary year. And a lot of folks were changing their returns specifically because they were trying to um, change their, their tax situation to qualify for those stimulus checks. So a lot of folks ended up sending in those uh, amended returns, and those could only be filed by paper, and they're still waiting for their checks too. Right. So the, one of the questions that occurred to my tax preparer uh, was, uh, so I'm filing electronically like a lot of people, but, I, you know, for this other stuff, I was mailing in a check uh, for the amount that I owed them for 2019. And as I said, yes, the estimated payment as well is a mailed in check. But given the fact that they are unlikely to open those envelopes for a while, there's probably there may be like a computer that will trigger at some point some kind of warning to me, particularly about the balance due. Right. The I yes. filed electrically, so electronically. So it's going to know that I owe them something, but I paid physically. So they're not going to know that I did it. Right. So, you know, kind of the key word for right now is patience, because the IRS has acknowledged that that's going to happen. They also have acknowledged that prior to the shutdown, they had, I think, somewhere in an area of about 20 million notices that were uh, queued to go out, and they didn't get sent out. So those notices are going out now, but they're going to be dated like March of 2020. So um, you could have resolved the issue that they're contacting you about since that time. So what they've started doing is putting in an extra notice in the notice that you're receiving. So you'll get two notices at once. One of them was the original notice saying that, you know, as you're saying, you, you might owe when you really don't, or you might have had to send something in when you really didn't, or you might need to send something in and you haven't yet, but the a deadline appears to have passed, but that's no longer the case. It's actually, you know, still they're going to give you some extra time. So there's this extra notice that they're putting in to uh, the, the notices that you'll get. And it'll basically say, um, you know, we're including this notice to let you know that you have extra time to to submit either an additional answer or paperwork or a, ch a payment. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, worried taxpayers, you know, because nobody likes to open mail from IRS anyway. Um, so, the, again, kind of the key is to be patient and hope that IRS can work through some of these issues. And also, if you do have a tax professional, as you mentioned that you did, you know, kind of, you know, work with them to stay on top of this. And that's not the same as calling them every week to, you know, ask where my, my refund is because they can't help you either because they can't, you know, they, they can't read into uh, your transcript or 
what's going with IRS any more than you can, but, you know, just kind of be patient and not to, to fret as much. Cause I am seeing that with some of my taxpayers where they're nervous because they got a notice that says you have 30 days from the date of this notice to respond, but the date of the notice was April 4th. <laughs> so again, IRS is going to give you some grace on those. Right. I, I would like to say that although you are an extraordinarily lucid uh, speaker and very good at explaining things, some of what you just said over the last couple of minutes is still kind of confusing uh, because Sorry. it's just such a hard, no, it's just such a hard thing to explain. I don't, I don't know that anybody yep. can possibly explain it. I will tell you that my tax preparer took a different tack, which was to call me up and say, hey, you know, maybe you should make your payments, see if there's a way to do it by some kind of electronic transfer, you know, so that you're not using a check, you know, in the mail and stuff like that. And I said, no freaking way. That's their problem if they can't find my check. But that might not be the best attitude for me to have, Kelly. Well, I think that's great advice on on your um, tax preparer's part to advise because that does speed things along. But I'm with you. I actually still have a checkbook. I use it rarely, but IRS is one of those instances where I use it because that's I just like to have the paper, uh, you know, notification that I sent it. I, I have my my evidence in my in my file. Um, I like it, and it just something about um, I guess maybe working with taxpayers and checks all these years. Um, but I prefer the check, but the IRS does encourage folks to use the electronic payments because it is faster and there is less chance of an error. Um, that said, you know, it doesn't, it, you're not going to be penalized for sending in that, that check. And I would also say, because one of the, where I thought you were going with this, but you didn't, is I thought you were going to say that he told you to make a payment in addition to the check. Because I have had people ask me about that. Should I send in another check? And I would say no, um, no. you know, because because what happens then when they cash the check that you were waiting on and then you've already made payment, um, you know, then they're going to have your money twice right. um, and they're not going to be inclined to refund it promptly. Um, although, and I, I um, do have some good news for taxpayers, which is folks who were waiting on those refunds, um, the IRS has actually changed the way they're paying interest this year. Mm -hmm. So they will start paying interest for refunds that have not yet been received as of April the 15th. Right. They have to, the refund has to be issued after April 15th, I guess, for yes. that to happen. But interest, amazing. Kelly Phillips Herb, you are a very lucid speaker indeed and very helpful uh, managing shareholder at the Herb Law Firm, senior contributor at Forbes, regular columnist for Bloomberg Tax, and uh, author of the Tax Girl blog. Thanks for doing this with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, in our final segment, which is coming right up, uh, you may have been hearing just what you needed in this uncertain time. Lots of loud explosions not far from where you live. We'll discuss. I don't take it all. I'm back. And by the way, it's good to be back. And uh, it's good also to hear the voice in my headphones of Kat Pastor. Uh, she's in the studio keeping uh, us on the air, making it possible for others to work remotely. Uh, so uh, thanks, Kat. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this particular episode. Uh, and it's just great to be back working with the whole team. Tomorrow, we are going to do a show. It's actually uh, a show co-produced by one of our interns. Um, it's a show on curfews and on the history of curfews. And the history of curfews, as it dates back even to the Middle Ages and, and earlier, is a pretty fascinating one. But obviously we saw them you know, all around the country uh, in the, during the times of unrest in recent weeks. Okay, so 
Uh, we're going to move onward. And speaking of unrest, you may not be getting as much rest because, yes, there are a lot of things going boom somewhere near you. I live about a block from the Hartford city line. The Hartford police tweeted, we have been receiving upwards of 200 calls a day in regards to fireworks in the city. Those with PTSD, babies, children, elderly, and pets have to endure the night noise. Call this line. They have a number. Uh, they have a fireworks text line for you to call. But Hartford is not unique. Syracuse police claim, claim a 335% increase in fireworks. In Boston, police recorded 1,445 fireworks complaints in the first week of June compared to 22 in the same week the previous year. So there's the question of what's going on and then also the interesting question, the always interesting question of what do people think is going on? Uh, and here to address both of those are Kate, is Caitlin Tiffany, uh, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, in, in the ways that I just uh, noted, I mean, I think that we're, we're past the point where there's any question that there's more fireworks and louder fireworks than in a typical year. It isn't just people's imaginations, I assume. Correct. Yes. Um, definitely not anybody's imagination, although there has been some speculation that people are noticing it more than they might have otherwise, just because they are at home all the time rather than out and about in summer. You know, um, when you're already partying, maybe fireworks wouldn't bother you as much um, and we're doing less of that. But there definitely are a lot more fireworks. Right. Yeah. No, if you're really drunk, you don't notice the fireworks so much. Um, <laughs> so. Um, we will sort of end, I think, with what probably is really happening here. But um, conspiracy theories abhor a vacuum. So in the absence of any kind of cogent explanation, it seems as though a whole bunch of ideas spooled up about you know, what could possibly be driving all this. What did, what did you learn about this? Yeah, so I started noticing um, the conspiracy theories not this past weekend, but the one before, um, sort of just as comments were bubbling up on Reddit and on Twitter from people saying the fireworks are happening in my city, in my city, in my city, which made it, it feel very coordinated and unexplained to a lot of people. Um, and particularly, I live in um, Flatbush in Brooklyn, which is where there have been so many fireworks that there's been police in, in riot gear out here a couple of times. So um, people in New York in particular were like, these don't look like normal fireworks. These look like professional fireworks. Fireworks of any kind are illegal in New York. Where are people getting these? Perhaps the police are providing them um, or the government is providing them to kids to use them as pawns, basically um, to lead to like sleep deprivation, um, like tension, confusion in communities that had been particularly supportive of the Black Lives Matter protests um, as much of New York was. Right. There's an odd dual edge to this because, and we'll come back to, to that in, in two seconds, but um, yes, uh, there seemed as though that, that was happening in communities where people of color live. On the other hand, in and I've experienced this around here in very liberal uh, communities, and, and I know it's happened in Brooklyn as well, there's been a sort of don't complain about the fireworks because 
you might be complaining about people of color who are very frustrated and letting off steam right now. And there might be almost something a little racialized about your dislike of hearing fireworks in, you know, Park Slope or wherever. So, but let's go back to, back to this other thing, because one of the key players here is a novelist named Robert Jones Jr. Explain what it is that he put out there. Yeah, he put out a Twitter thread and then a Facebook post that had the same text as the Twitter thread, both of which were shared, um, you know, upwards of 15,000 times within the first couple of days. And the thread suggested a couple of different possibilities. One was that police were giving fireworks to, um, to, to kids for the reasons that I was just saying to, to cause dis- disorientation and, um, Another was that the government was possibly setting fireworks off themselves to desensitize people to the sounds of like artillery. Um, and that was a, I, I think not really explained exactly what that would be preparing people for. Um, he said uh, a war zone because it's about to become a war zone. I, uh, I think people were spreading that conspiracy theory a little bit less than they were the theory that police were either um, giving kids fireworks or just kind of ignoring fireworks in an effort to be kind of like, well, you guys protested against us. Now you, now you need us to come take away fireworks or whatever. Um, That theory was probably the one that people circulated the most, but, but Robert Jones's was certainly the most dramatic. Although the conspiracy theories are kind of all over the map. And so whoever feels put upon by somebody else basically can take this narrative and meld it into their own appropriate conspiracy theory. And I know this because today, as I mentioned that we were going to be tackling this topic on Facebook, uh, I got a very, very long posting from a guy who wanted to tell me about his friend, Chris. Somebody should investigate this person, Chris, because everybody seems to have a friend, Chris, who tells them about some horrific conspiracy that has no basis in reality. But anyway, what Chris is saying is that it's Antifa that's doing this. And uh, what they're doing is they're testing police response times and they're kind of getting local uh, residents acclimated to the frequent sounds of explosions that sound like gunfire. It's also a chance for Antifa to figure out how much law enforcement strength there is in terms of response so that Antifa can eventually uh, move in and do all kinds of horrible Antifa things that I'm not going to bother to repeat because it's all nonsense. But it, it really does seem as though, you know, in, in this in these uncertain times, to use the cliche, um, when there's some other kind of anomalous thing, Caitlin, like more fireworks than usual, louder fireworks than usual, anybody who's got an issue can kind of kind of fold this in as a story. Yeah, I think we've known for a long time that conspiracy theories usually give people a way to explain something strange in a way that fits in with the worldview that they already have. So in that case, yeah, I mean, that sounds like somebody who has really been taken in by this idea of a violent, anarchist, radical left, um, and they see this as fitting into that story, whereas people who have been developing for years a distrust and fear of the police, which is obviously a reasonable um, distrust and fear, um, could also fit this into into that worldview um, in the same way. Right. I mean, I I think you quoted a professor who studies conspiracy theories. You start with a fact pattern 
that everybody agrees on. So there's fluoride in the water. Nobody questions that there's fluoride in the water. Then the question is, is fluoride a good thing or a bad thing? And you sort of jump off from there. And at this point, as we said at the top of this conversation, nobody's really questioning anymore. There's more fireworks out there than usual. And they do seem a little louder and more professional grade than amateur fireworks, you know, in your city neighborhood or, or whatever. So you start with that. And, and, and then... I, I think part of the strength of a conspiracy theory is you could track it back to that one thing that everything that everybody agrees about, that, that there is a fact and you just imposed your own craziness on it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's been happening a little bit during the protests in general. I, I know um, on the other side of things, there was the conspiracy theory uh, that some employees of a Shake Shack had deliberately poisoned some police officers, which circulated for a while before it was proven completely false. I think there's just a lot of really dramatic events happening. Um, and it is kind of hard to decide like what is definitely fact and what is definitely fiction when we're all kind of sitting in our homes, like turning to Twitter for information. Um, I think that's definitely challenging even for, even for me as a journalist, like I've watched things unfold on Twitter before they're in the mainstream news. And oftentimes I'll see things that turn out to be totally false and, and you don't know right away. Um, so yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is that because conspiracy theories are, they are usually based in some fact. And the other side of that is that even if they aren't based in fact, evidence can come out later that proves them correct. So this theory that the police have been terrorizing um, communities with fireworks, obviously, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. But at the same time, you can kind of see where people are coming from because the government has sabotaged uh, civil rights movements in the past, and it has done so with you know, really underhanded or deceptive techniques that not specifically fireworks, but, you know, writing anonymous hate mail to Martin Luther King Jr. That kind of thing really happened. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, but Caitlin Tiffany, thank you so much for your time. Staff writer for The Atlantic. Yeah, I'm going to take a wild guess that it's bored people who haven't been able to do a lot of the things that they would ordinarily like to do. There also might be a little bit of access to surplus fireworks because so many public fireworks, Fourth of July uh, exhibitions, official ones in cities have been canceled. Um, you know, Healthy skepticism means that when you hear hoofbeats, it's probably horses, not zebras. Uh, but every once in a while, a zebra gets out there. So as Caitlin is saying, because, <laughs> don't, don't just dismiss these things out of hand. All right, we have to stop. Thanks for listening. Uh, good to be back. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about curfews. When the smoke gets in your Time to tell the truth These things have to be fair